our society has uh, kind of conditioned us that if we go to all the right schools, work hard, get the good grades, get the good job, find the right mate, get the right house, you know, build this career, get the right vacations, someday we get to be happy. Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I am here today with Eric Holse-Apple, who is associated with Living in the Gap. And he's going to tell us a little bit about his recent book and a little bit about his nonprofit. So, Eric, why don't you, by way of introduction, tell me a little bit about your journey through life that's led you to be on the show with me today? Yeah. So I graduated. I'm in uh, Colorado. I graduated in uh, the mid-1980s with, a, with an MBA and started in real estate. And I was immediately successful in real estate. I uh, was a manager and then uh, president of North American Division of an Australian company. Uh, in my 20s and uh, was moved to Los Angeles and worked in Los Angeles, Denver, New Jersey, went to Boston, Georgia, Western Canada I had uh, responsibility for in Calgary and Alberta. And uh, I had all the outward uh, appearances of really great success, the six-figure salary, the Mercedes, the apartment. But I was a walking boarding pass. I hadn't been to, you know, wasn't working out. I was stressed. I was single. Was overweight. I drank too much, and by my early 30s, you know, I had uh, I got a transfer to Boston, and I looked in the mirror. And I remember, never remember the, never forget the time. I mean, I looked in the mirror and just said, you know, you got to make some changes. You're not going to be around very long, and I did. You know, I lost quite a bit of weight, and I started working out. I was an athlete. I hadn't worked out in years. hadn't been to the gym. I started doing that again. I left that job. Decided to apply for a PhD in economics program back in Colorado. I met my wife. And I found yoga. Um, and it's like I'd been come, I was an athlete, but I'd been come disassociated with my body. Like my body, Ken Robinson, an author I like, says, uh, your body, <laughs> something you just carries your head from meeting to meeting, you know? And I got back in that. And then a little bit after that, my older brother, uh, who had been kind of estranged from the family, he's a poet and my dad was a football coach. And they were like oil and water. And... Uh, I watched my older brother take up meditation and come back to the family over a number of years. And then we got even, you know, got back to my dad and he opened my dad. And I felt like I got my whole family back again. And he said, you want to try it? I said, yeah, I'll try that. That looked like magic. It was the first time I saw one person change and it changed the whole world. Uh, my dad didn't change. He was in his seventies. He didn't change at all. You know, he changed a little bit. He softened in his old age, but, but anyway, um, so I tried it and I had immediate results with it. And for years I was a closet meditator. I mean, I didn't come out, you know, I just, uh, did my practice and, you know, those kind of things in the morning and then went on. But years later, people started at my work, started noticing a difference in me and talking. And we just, I just introduced different people that I worked with, to some of the practices. Eventually we started a seed group. Uh, just a monthly meeting. We read a book and we called it centering. Nothing as weird as meditation, you know, but just, uh, before I knew it, the room was full and, uh, really the company, the management committee got together and changed the mission statement or vision statement to mindfully creating community. That was a game changer. Everybody's involved in nonprofits. 
has some, I mean, it's different, varying. Everybody's different what they do. Not everybody meditates, but most people, there's a mindful, there's a mindful theme. And everybody's uh, really works on their families. And anyway, years later, I started a nonprofit called Living in the Gap, sharing that with other professionals. We train other professionals how to run their businesses more mindfully. And uh, it's been a great ride. And then I wrote a book to uh, kind of outline what we do called Profit with Presence, the 12 Pillars of Mindful Leadership that kind of outlines the program. Okay, so I want to hear, we're going to get into the book, but I first want to hear about your business um, and how, so I actually wrote the book called The Mindful Landlord. So I I have been a closet meditator (laughs) or not so closet meditator for a while. (laughs) Um, And I'm curious to hear about how do you, what does that translate into? Like, how do you help people integrate mindfulness into a more, into, in a professional context? You know, so many I hear in the business. I mean, I, I just think they're at odds that the, the mindfulness community, not all, but some, there's a theme that money's dirty, you know, uh, and in the business community, mindfulness is woo-woo. And, you know, I, I just try to bridge that and that, you know, I say to the business community, while the world is divided, distracted, can't make progress in key areas, that's woo-woo to me. Mindfulness, if I boil it down to one word, is focus. What can I, can I focus on what I choose to focus on to the exclusion of all else for that for a period of time and notice when I don't, when I can't? And, uh, you know, that kind of if I'm meditating, that might be my breath or a mantra, could be a client that I'm with. When I go home, hopefully it's my family. If I'm in a sport, hopefully it's that. But can I, because we can multitask, but we can't be conscious of everything we're doing. We can perform the operations, but we don't know we're there. You know, there's just such a qualitative difference in that. So I train, you know, people or teach people that, you know, you focus on what you what you're doing at the moment as much as you can. And then, you know, none of us are perfect at it. And when you're at work, focus on that. When you're home, focus on that. I teach a priority system called baseball. It says, listen, number one is your mindset. That's home plate. Get up in the morning if you can in the morning. You know, whatever your practices are, I promote gratitude, affirmation, a little meditation, a little get mindful movement, yoga, but get your mindset right because the picture is life. I mean, we don't know what pitch we're going to get for that day. If it's going to be a pandemic or a tsunami, or I'm going to win the lottery, you know, or they're going to storm the Capitol. I don't know what's going to happen that day, but I know my mindset is going to make all the difference in, in what happens to that. Then for me and different people, in my 20s, my first base was career. But for me, my first base is family, family and friends. Do they have what they need for the day? That's my priority because that's why I have a job. Second base is work. And if my family's taken care of, when I go to work, I can really focus at work. I don't get drawn back. You know, I can focus and be more efficient. I say, you know, I could have the greatest job in the world, but if my family's a mess, you know, it's not going to matter to me that much that I have the greatest job in the world because I go to work to just provide for my family. So that's second base, go to work and take care of that. And third base for me is community service, uh, but not in, not to the exclusion of my job or my family. I need to have it in the right priority. But I think if I prioritize right and I get the right mindset and I'm efficient and focused, I can do all those things and they all reinforce each other. Uh, and I just say that's a home run if I can do all those things. So we teach a priority system of how to, you know, when I'm at work, focus on work. And when I go home, turn that off and focus on my family. You know, try to put the phone in the holster. Don't have to be emailing all night. They can wait. You know, might have to sometimes. 
but it's not have that be the the default that I'm constantly distracted and try to notice when I'm distracted and come back. Um, I want to just ask you to maybe delineate a little bit the difference between mindset and mindfulness, because I feel like there's a lot of slippage between those two terms. Um, and I know that I get this question all the time when, you know, especially in the real estate field, everybody's like mindset, mindset, mindset. And when you say the word mindfulness, like people are kind of like, oh, that sounds like mindset. It must be mindset. So maybe for our audience, can you just differentiate those two things? I know you kind of talked about um, mindfulness as really focused, and then you listed a few practices that might correspond to mindset. But can you maybe just be like a little bit more super clear about the the dividing line between those two things? I, I will. For me, uh, and, I, and I don't think this is like uh, absolute or the truth, okay? Because I think there could be different approaches to this. But for me, mindset would be within mindfulness, mindfulness comes from consciousness, from awareness, which is a big bucket, maybe the biggest bucket, you know, out there of what the, what the universe is and comprised of and what, and whatnot. And I'm not saying that's truth or fact either, but you know, there's a lot of science headed that way. Uh, so mindfulness is, is from that world, the bigger world. And then mindset is what do I do within that? Cause my mind, well, we have some 6,000 thoughts a day constantly bubbling up, you know, they're uncon I mean, they come from nowhere. They're somewhat random. They seem like thoughts just pump in. But I've learned, well, and the other part is that we have this recurring conversation in our head, right? We have this voice that, that talks to us and sometimes it's sabotaging, sometimes it's negative. But I've learned, you know, most of what's in us has been put in there by culture, by our schools, by our, you know, parents, by the society, by friends, whatever. It's been put in there. And it's kind of regurgitating and turning over and over again. Well, most of our thoughts are repetitive, but that we can train that over time. I think it's quite a process. It's not a weekend seminar. It's quite a process of first through mindfulness, clearing out, maybe meditation. Everyone doesn't have to meditate, but clearing out the old and starting to be aware of what culture has put into us, how, how our, how our uh goals and objectives and everything have really been created from the outside rather than from the inside so often. Rather than us creating them, they've been kind of, this is what, you know, three houses and, you know, two cars and five, whatever. You know, they're, it's mostly consume, making things and consuming things is what has been put into us. And then you can reprogram yourself. You can reprogram that voice. You can, you know, I haven't been able, I've been able to quiet it. I haven't been able to eliminate it. But I have been able to, through practices over many years, through practicing gratitude and affirmation and, and reading you know, powerful books repetitively, I've been able to change that conversation. So a lot of times the default conversation is more positive than negative, uh, noticing when I'm judging and giving it up. So mindset to me is a, is a smaller bucket within mindfulness, and it's how to approach things positively. You know, versus, I mean, so much, there's so much out there in the world that's negative. I mean, just turn on the news. It's so, it can be so discouraging. But also, when you stop, when you turn that off a little bit and you start coming from gratitude and what we, what we have to be appreciative for and sunrises and little things, there's even more things that are going right and to be happy about. And to work on focusing those more because I've learned that what I focus on expands. If I focus on the positive, I mean, your child rearing or employees or anything else can be in this way. You know, if I focus on what people are doing right, 
it is so much more powerful and impactful and productive than if I'm constantly trying to correct somebody, you know, and pointing out what they're doing wrong. Now, it doesn't mean I don't ever have to correct somebody, point out what they're wrong, but an emphasis on, on the positive makes just a huge mindset shift for me and for the others. And I've just found that's, you know, and that ends up being a choice because you can choose either. Happiness mindset is a choice you choose in each moment that you have. When you have these things come up to you, you can say, no, I'm going to choose this road. I'm going to choose this. I'm going to choose happiness. I'm going to choose, you know, gratitude. I'm not going to choose retribution and hate. I'm just not going to choose those. And we all have those possibilities and they come up. But I learned through my practice to let them go, you know, and say, no, no, that's not, that's not where I'm going today. My vision of the world is, is this. Yeah. I like, I like the image of the two, the two buckets. I think that's a, that's a a good way of, of thinking, you know, mindfulness is like the con, the container of consciousness, right? Which is like such a, a huge bag in terms of how do you work with consciousness in order to bring more things under the sphere of you know your perception i guess and then said as a bit of a smaller kind of a bucket so i I like that explanation and then becoming aware of our consciousness because it's easy not to be it's easy just to work you know through thought and that's a very limiting approach to life yeah absolutely absolutely so tell me about your book now um i'm yeah (laughs) let's go there so, uh, yeah, it's Profit with Presence, The 12 Pillars of Mindful Leadership was a Wall Street Journal bestseller when it came out in March. Um, and it really outlines a program of the conceptual framework of, you know, how things like mindfulness and mindset and those things work together, how transformation is a, is a process of slow boils, daily, simple daily practices of gratitude, meditation, body work, those kind of things, prayer, if that's in it for you, whatever it is. And transformational shocks, these bigger things that happen to us that I find if we're constantly opening, there's more possible for little leaps in, in, uh, in our growth. And uh, also talk about things like the procession effect, which uh, for real estate professionals especially, is the world works at 90 degree angles. And some of the, you know, I've been in real estate for 40 years. I found that I taught at university for 20 years. I've been on habitat boards and housing authority and these things. And I found when I go in legitimately trying to serve the community, I meet other leaders and I get things done and business opportunities open up so amazingly. The world works at 90 degree angles. For instance, uh, honeybees go in to get flowers, right? They go in to get the honey to bring back and they pollinate. It's a 90 degree angle. The sun pulls the earth toward, but this gravity goes around at a 90 degree angle. Business is the same way. Your karma is set by these things. So a lot of people say, oh, when I get some time, I'll go do that nonprofit work. I'd say, you know what? When you're first starting out, make the time. That's how you meet people and you really get to know who they are and they get to know who you are. And the casual conversations of you're doing that and something happens. I mean, I've had shopping centers happen from that. All kinds of things happen being out there in the community. So that's one of the one of the conceptual frameworks is, and I say affluence increases influence. It's okay to make money. You know, it has to be. How can we be in a capitalist system and money is dirty? You know, that it's just not. 
okay. I mean, we have to we have to give the business community an on-ramp to practice mindfulness. And they, it's okay to make money as long as, what am I going to do with it? Money's not a purpose. Profit's not a purpose. It's the outcome of living a purpose-driven life and de- delivering something that's in demand. And I mean, there's so much good that comes from it. What's been missing from capitalism, in my opinion, is the consciousness. You know, when you come, become more conscious, you're automatically more compassionate. You're automatically, you know, more interested in the community, not just trying to get something from it, but to build the community. In fact, we have a real estate, I mean, you're, and really for any business, but your business is no better than the community from which it's in. You know, if you build that community, it's going to help your business. And it's going to help your family. It's going to be the place you want to live. It's all, you know, it's all those things. Plus, it has the effect of providing service and gratitude, and it changes your mindset that you're you're living a life of service. And it's okay to make money at the same time. What are you going to do with it? You know, doing having money to make my family's life better, make the community better, and and provide opportunity. That's mindfulness to me. You know, that's that's a mindful approach. The book outlines that and the 12 pillars of mindful leadership give you step by step. You know, this is how you can, and you can take it to any level. Everybody won't take it, you know, to all the levels, but, you know, but it starts with really simple daily practices, you know, two minutes of meditation, take a walk without your phone, you know, start paying attention to what you're eating. Listen to people. The key to relationships, you know, is listening, really listening, not to this conversation going on in our own head, but what is the other person really saying? Sure has changed my life. Enjoying the episode so far? Have you really been listening to the episode or has your monkey mind been taking you off in one direction or another? Our mental habits can be our biggest assets or our biggest liabilities as we pursue certain goals. For me, the biggest performance gains have always come from training my mind. In my book, Mindful Landlord, I talk about how you can train your mind and how you can apply some of these strategies to your journey in the real estate field. The book is available on Amazon and also on its website, mindfullandlord.com. Now I'll stop evangelizing for the power of mental training and let you get back to the show. So, okay, I'm curious. Can you give me another uh, one of those principles? I liked, I liked the last one. Give me another one. Sure. Um, success is a, is a mindset of be, do, have, which means happiness first. You know, so our society has uh, kind of conditioned us that if we go to all the right schools, work hard, get the good grades, get the good job, find the right mate, get the right house, you know, build this career, get the right vacations, someday we get to be happy. And I've just found through myself and so many friends that we just keep changing the goalposts. You know, it'd be fine if I just had to give up a year and then I'm happy, but I just found, you know, for, it, was, it was six figures. Then you get there and then it's this. And then it's, you know, it's was the home ownership and no, it's got to be the bigger house and the four car garage. It's got to be the country club. You know, we go up, we want to travel first as a bus. Then we say, oh, if I could just fly, then we fly and say, if I could just be in first. And then we go first, we say, oh, if I could just fly private. And then, oh, what if I should go to the moon? We just constantly change the goalpost on ourselves that the hot dog is always out there at the end of the string. And the, most of the science I think that I've read anyway comes out of Harvard that you know, Sean Archer and others, that, that happiness comes first. And they, they're the science shows that happy people are more successful. And when you think about it, who would you rather talk to as a business, in the business? Somebody that's happy and that makes you feel better and is listening to you when you call them? Or somebody that's constantly grinding, you know, constantly upset, constantly this. So um, 
happiness first. And uh, so you can be you can be happy now. And we have some exercises to show you how you get in that you know mindset of having all those things you want and that happiness and then having that feeling now. I just think when you're when you're happy and satisfied, you'll you'll take the actions that are really going to get you to to the material success too, you know. Um, and and I've also found if you don't take those steps, you get the material success without the happiness. It's really pretty empty. Most of the science shows it used to be eighty thousand. I think with inflation now it's a hundred. Over that amount dollar amount, people don't get happier; they just get more stuff. And uh, I just think if you bring happiness to it. Or there's nothing wrong with having, you know, an extra house and, you know, flying private or first or whatever. But until we start trying to find our happiness in it, you know, uh-huh. uh, so really zoning in on what it takes to make you happy day to day. Now, never don't wait. Don't wait to be happy. It doesn't come. You know, we just come up with the next list. We can, we're never going to make society happy. I don't yeah. Wait. I actually have a like um a, another show that ran for a year where we've discontinued it now, but it's called uh, Mindful Wealth. And we had as a guest Sonia Lubomirsky on the show, who's actually a happiness researcher. Yeah. And um she described precisely that process, which is it's I think the technical term is hedonic adjustment, which is that the minute you acquire one thing, the goalpost is like automatically moved to the next thing. And it's actually the amount of time that you're appreciative of that like specific upgrade that you got is very limited and so like if you understand that um you know definitely what moves the happiness needle um is not necessarily going to be the specific metric that you're striving for now if you're looking for meaning and in terms of you know what uh this is this is like a whole other topic of conversation um in terms of what leads to feelings of fulfillment right is it the quest for something that's meaningful um, is it a search for happiness, which is sort of a, again, like a moving, moving gold post. There are definitely practices that you can do to be sort of, you know, move the happiness needle, but that what, you know, being aware of that process of hedonic adjustment is definitely important because the, that's why keeping up with the Jones is, which is like kind of an external motivation as opposed to an internal motivation is a losing proposition. Well, in, in the last 30 years, it's gotten worse because of the one percenter phenomenon you know, how many billionaires there are and what they really have. If if the rest of us are all comparing ourselves to that, you know, we'll be happy when, wow. You know, it's just, uh, how do, and, and the other thing I say to our groups is, if if we here in North America can't be happy, what's the rest, what chances does the rest of the world have? I mean, we're we're the, you know, professional pinnacle of, of success and affluence and all those things. And if we can't be happy, what chance does the third world second world have you know we have those things well what we have to do is flip the switch and, and and come from a different place doesn't mean we don't want more different more improvement or more of this or changes or what of that but i think you're more likely to get them if you come from uh happiness gratitude than you are if you come at them from disgruntledness and what you don't have mm-hmm. um let me change tax a little bit but on on a, a um kind of a related note. So there are two questions that I always ask guests that come on the show. So uh, the first one is, you know, I think you mentioned earlier on in the interview that you started in the real estate industry and had immediate success. I think one of the things that I'm kind of trying to, you know, fight against with this podcast is this, you know, social media, how can I say, like image, outward image of, of what the success looks like that every real estate investor enjoys. 
And when you pull back the veil on that and look at some of the sacrifices and the lifestyle hits that people took to attain their specific level of success, do you have something to say about that? Do you feel like you kind of made sacrifices and took lifestyle hits to get where you are? And what did that look like? Oh, yeah, I was I was at least five years, 70, 80 hours a week, you know, single, just traveling, doing things. I learned a bunch, you know, technically, but I was dead inside, you know, doing it. And I, I can't deny there's probably things I got from that, you know, that elevated me. Most of it had to do, it wasn't, uh, wasn't money during that time. That success came much later, but it was experience, you know, how to put things together, how to see things, how to know how things, how to know the lingo, you know, how to put the numbers together and those kind of things. And I think in most things, you know, there's going to be a time when it, it takes an extraordinary effort to get yourself bathed in uh, what is uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about the 10,000 hours, you know, uh, to be, to be a master of something, it, it takes, you know, and you know, you got to balance that though with, you know, why are you doing it? I hate it when I see people doing it at the exclusion of family. I didn't have family at the time. You know, I, I, I would not have kids at least and a wife. I had a mom and dad and brothers, but, and, uh, I wished I did, but I didn't. So I, I would also be very careful, you know, what you're balancing that against. Because what I find so much, uh, Harvard came out with a study recently, it was a 70 year long study of 500 some participants. They started with less, they finished with what was the, uh, the, the you know, the, the long-term key to happiness was long-term relationships. You know, the key to happiness was what the relationships that people had. It wasn't money. It wasn't, you know, title. It wasn't those things. It was, do they have those long-term bonds with other people? So, so I also caution against it, you know, what is success for you? Get flat with that because I know a lot of people with a lot of money that are miserable, you know, and they don't know how to change, you know, they, they just go to the next thing. Uh, so spent, uh, I would, I would, the com- I would also not forget the conversation we had leading into this because, you know, <laughs> don't do it to the exclusion of happiness thinking you'll be happy when, you know, if you love to do it and you're doing it, you know, I've got a son now that's, uh, he's a game developer, you know, building uh, game platforms and those kind of things. He loves it. And he's been working 12 hours a week for the last two weeks doing a launch of something, you know, and he's just enthralled in it. You know, he says, I love my job so much, you know. That's what that is. you know. Nothing wrong with working hard, but get your get to, get it straight on what you know. It's not it's not just to get to an end result. I mean, you gotta enjoy the journey. You gotta mm-hmm. enjoy that process of when you're mm-hmm. when you're getting there, or it's just empty. Yeah, I uh, I think that's you know if I had to put something in the uh, you know uh, maybe another little nugget from the mindfulness bucket. Um, definitely, you know, process and journey focused as opposed to purely uh, outcome focused, right? And like, I think we could talk about, you know, Carol Dweck with the growth mindset versus um, uh, fixed mindset. But I think that that's like completely the thing is the more you're oriented towards the journey and the experience, ultimately the outcomes will reflect that. And the people you meet along the way, you spend a little extra time getting to meet the people along the way, you know, you'll be even more successful. And you know, you can build some of those long-term relationships at work. They don't all have to be, you know, personal. Work relationships are awesome. You know, a lot of people are afraid of them. Say, I may have to fire that person. Say, well, you know what? That can be done compassionately and mindfully if you have to do it. it. Doesn't mean you don't want to get close to people. What a what a 
I'm going to spend, you know, almost my waking hours somewhere where I don't dare get close to people, you know, because someday I may have to do something that's, that's contrary to their best interest or something. I mean, that's not, that's not a, that's a cop out by regard in my, in my beliefs, get to know the people that you're working with and get to know the people you're don't have just this transactional world is pretty empty. So you can build some of those long-term relationships. Some of my best friends I work with, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely, definitely relate to that. Like, I think also like, you know, in, in my real estate business, like part of the reason why I enjoy coming to work or, you know, logging, logging into work, let's say, because how much do we actually physically come to work now? Um, but are the fact that I get to have conversations with people who I have like great work relationships with. And you know, for sure, there's a delineation to make between, you know, personal friends and family and and work relationships. But that doesn't mean that those relationships are necessarily impoverished or of lesser value or, or whatever it is. You can have awesome work relationships with people that. Um, you know, I had um, and the, uh, some of them are retiring now, so I'm, I'm losing some of them, but I had the same title person. He actually hired me out of college in 1984. He retired two years ago. CPA that I worked with since 1985 uh, retired about that same time. Attorney that I've worked with since the mid-80s. I still my attorney. I talked with him this morning. It's just fantastic. You know, it's awesome. So Yeah. We're just about coming up on time. Um, I want to just give you, you know, one last opportunity to say anything that I would have missed, highlight something. Um, that I would have missed before we kind of do the send off? No, I would just say, you know, if you have some interest in it, start small and be consistent. You know, there's a lot of things you can do. A lot of people think meditation is not for them. I think usually they start with too long, too much. You know, a couple minutes is fine. And if it isn't for you, find some other things, you know, mindful walk in nature, you know, just an intention to it that it can really change your whole life. Uh, and make your make your career worth having, you know, that you can enrich your family in ways that you haven't even dreamed of yet. So just get started, start, start small and be consistent. A little bit of something is better than a lot of nothing. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> one of my favorites. <laughs> um, and so how can our audience uh, reach out to you? How can they learn more about what you do if they found this conversation interesting? Our website is livinginthegap.org. We have free resources there, book lists, you know, some tapes, how to get started, all those kind of things. You can get the book on that or it's available on Amazon. And the book would give you the outline of uh, the programs that we run. We run a nine-month mindful leadership program for professionals in Northern Colorado that uh, you can zoom in and you come in in person a half dozen times or something. But just get started. Do something. (laughs) Well, Eric, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with me today, share uh, some of this wisdom and experience with our audience. Um, And uh, for everybody who found this episode, you know, of interest, inspiring, useful, please go ahead and share it. Do check out the show notes for the the, uh, specific resources that Eric has shared and um, tune in next week for another episode. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.